it's supposed to be a treatment center, but like, it's not like when I first got there, I was immediately like re-traumatized and just kind of like in my gender was invalidated. That's Allie Reyes. She's 20 and she's from New Hampshire and she's transgender. I was made to sleep on a totally separate unit in a locked room, which everyone sleeps in a locked room, but it just didn't make sense to me that, that like if every door in a unit locks and everyone sleeps by themselves, why can't I sleep on the same floor in the same unit as the other girls. They basically say that they think that I have like the strength to like open up the door and then like sexually abuse someone, which I would never do, obviously. And I don't have a history of that. They just like completely othered me and just made me feel like a nobody. Like they just othered me so bad. When Allie was 14, she was charged with simple assault. If you remember from the first episode, simple assault is actually one of those 50-50 crimes we were talking about. This charge started a cycle which led her to spend four years in and out of the foster care and juvenile justice systems. I had chances to get out and I did get out and there was just behaviors and I would just be sent back. Again, not for anything criminal. Um, You can be sent back to detention once you've been in detention for something as simple as talking to somebody who you used to be incarcerated with. She was attacked by her peers. She was put in situations that made her out herself, even though she wanted to keep her transition private. She said she will never forget how this made her feel. I still have nightmares about like being sent back there. Just from like all those times like where I got out and I thought like, okay, like this is it, like I'm out. And then like just being thrown back for a petty reason. A juvenile delinquent. Take my disability. I still have nightmares about like being sent back there. The legacy of chattel slavery and the slaughter of indigenous people. Allie is not alone. In the juvenile justice system, kids across the country deal with unequal treatment because of who they are, be it because of their race, ethnicity, ability, or gender identity. In this episode, we're talking about the barriers, the challenges, and the injustices in the juvenile justice system for kids who fall into a minority. I'm Katie Seifer, and this is Kids in Prison. Prison. For kids. Games of kids. Kids, man. A lot of them kids never fell in love before. I still have nightmares about like being sent back there. I was, you know, I didn't, I didn't know any better. Some of those kids get locked up. So I'm here with my colleague Michaela Hughes Shaw. She's been covering systemic disparities in the system for our project. Michaela, what have you learned? So really what we've found is your identity can wildly impact how your case is treated. And there's a stark overrepresentation of minority youth, youth with disabilities, and youth that identify as LGBTQ plus in the juvenile justice system. And while all these groups of kids share a common experience of incarceration, they all face unique challenges just based on who they are. And the OJJDP that's the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, reports that youth of color make up about two-thirds of juveniles who are detained or incarcerated, even though they commit the same kinds of crimes and at similar rates as white youth. Wow. Okay. So minority youth are overrepresented in the juvenile justice system, but it seems that youth of color are, in particular, getting some unfair treatment. 
Yes, exactly. And we found the same kinds of disparities in the juvenile justice system that are still common in the adult system as well. You know, higher rates of arrest, detention, and sentencing for these kids. There are also policies that lend a hand in creating these disparities for minorities as well. But it's not just minority kids experiencing this unjustness. And I want to bring in News 21 reporter Jana Allen to talk more about that. Yes, so I have also been covering systemic disparities, and what I found is that while only about 7% of youth in the U.S. identify as LGBTQ+, nearly 15% of the kids in the juvenile justice system identify this way, and we know that 85% of those kids are also youth of color. We've also learned a lot about kids that have disabilities and how they end up in the juvenile justice system and how they experience disparities. Up to 85% of youth in detention facilities have a disability. The experts that we talk to say that these youth are often misunderstood by those around them. Their behavior is punished for not fitting into social norms, and many of them need special education, but they don't always receive it in detention facilities. I'm going to bring Andrew Hairston in to talk about that. He is the school-to-prison pipeline director at the Texas Appleseed Organization. I think it is the entire cultural philosophy, right? It's this idea, especially Black children, but also LGBTQ young people and kids with disabilities need to be controlled, right? They need to be just put into these tight, punitive learning environments where there is little opportunity for free expression and creative outlets, and they need to, at any sign of dissent or misbehavior, quote unquote, need to be dealt with swiftly and ruthlessly. So what he's talking about is really similar to what Allie experienced and how she ended up in the juvenile justice system in the first place. Her mother had her arrested after an argument got out of hand. I'm honestly like not even sure what we were arguing about, but it ended up being like really verbal and um, a little bit physical and it was mutual combat. It wasn't like I was coming after her. She was coming after me exclusively. And then she called the police and the story that she told the police was obviously just not true. I was the only one arrested. It was just so like mind boggling to me, like in the moment that like I was really in that situation and that like, I was like, I mean, I don't want to use the word set up, but like, it's really like what it felt like. And just like being like 14 years old, like coming into my gender identity. So Allie was arrested on a simple assault charge. And about a month later, she had her hearing and she pled guilty because that's what her lawyer advised her to do. So I ended up pleading guilty, not knowing that me pleading guilty would lead to like four years of me being in the system just due to like quote unquote violations. Like I said, that once you're in the juvenile justice system in New Hampshire, it's really hard to get out. The original deal was that Allie would have nine months of probation and would stay in a group home during that time, but things didn't go exactly as planned. She started to act out and that led to her getting kicked out of group home after group home. And there were actually already limited group homes that would take her because of her transgender identity, which was not against the law at the time in New Hampshire. So eventually, when there was nowhere left for Allie to go, 
her probation officer asked for her to be held at the Sununu Youth Services Center. I had written something to the judge because I was trans and I was just super, I had always heard about like trans people like really being harassed in facilities and stuff. And so first of all, I shouldn't be, be sent here. In the law, like how they have to send you there when you're, when you're a, a safety risk to yourself or others. Um, so they were sending me there like quote unquote as a safety risk, but like the risk to my safety was a lot higher. On Allie's first day, she was jumped. And while Allie spent time on the girls' unit during the day, that night she was led to a hall of empty locked rooms on a separate floor. She was told that's where she would be sleeping at night. The facility wouldn't house her with either the girls or the boys. According to the experts that we've spoken to, there's this misleading stereotype that LGBTQ plus people, especially those that are transgender, are more likely to be sexual predators. And this is often why things like this happen. According to the Prison Rape Elimination Act, a transgender individual's comfort should be considered when deciding where they should be housed. But like we've seen with Allie, this doesn't always happen. Shannon Wilbur, the youth policy director at the National Center for Lesbian Rights, said that facilities are pretty much free to interpret this law however they want. And you have to do a case-by-case analysis of what makes sense for that young person. That's a great standard. When you try to, to implement it on the ground, people don't know what it means. Like, what should they be thinking about? What are the considerations when you're classifying somebody who identifies as trans? especially if it's not something they're very familiar with. So there's a lot, and this is true of of many laws, they're very general. And then the the actual like operation of the law on the ground varies tremendously because people are kind of interpreting it through their own lens. Allie said that this was one of the hardest things she dealt with while in the facility. I mean, I went in there knowing that there was probably going to be issues and they probably weren't going to do the right thing, but it still was like kind of shocking. Mm-hmm. I was like, I didn't think they were going to take it like to that level. Allie was sent home from the detention center to her mom when she was 17, but her mom still did not want her there. But she basically just called my probation officer and was like, yeah, like I don't want to deal with her anymore. Like she's like displaying these behaviors again. Allie was sent back to the detention center until she aged out at 18. So, wow, Allie had what sounds like a very traumatic experience in a juvenile facility, which resulted from her gender identity as a transgender teenager, now transgender woman. Can you speak to how common this kind of experience is for transgender teenagers? Yeah, so what happened to Allie is definitely not uncommon. And the tough thing is that A transgender teenager's experience is going to vary widely depending on the state that they're incarcerated in and even sometimes at the county level. And this is just due to the variation in the ways that states are going to interpret laws like the Prison Rape Elimination Act, which is the only federal law that has protections in place for LGBTQ incarcerated people. And everything that's in PREA is meant specifically 
to prevent and address sexual assault in correctional settings. While there are PREA standards that talk about LGBTQ plus individuals, they're still focused on preventing sexual assault. For instance, when PREA says that a transgender individual's comfort should be taken into account on where they're housed, that is to prevent a transgender individual from being placed somewhere where they're going to be more at risk of sexual abuse. But it also says that a facility's first option should not be placing that individual in isolation just to avoid any sort of risk of sexual abuse. That should be the last resort. The issue with Allie is that this is what the facility did. So that in itself just kind of shows how every facility is free to interpret and other similar protections that are in place for LGBTQ plus individuals. So we've heard about the struggles that LGBTQ plus youth experience in the juvenile system. And you mentioned earlier high numbers. I think you said 85% of incarcerated youth actually have a disability. What are those youth in particular facing? When we think about young people with disabilities, we often leave out the ones that aren't visible. There are a lot of kids out there who have a learning disability or a mental illness, and it's not something that everyone is going to see or understand right away. But what we know is that kids with disabilities sometimes receive harsher consequences, even when they shouldn't. And this often begins at school. There are three ways that this happens. There's push out, there's shut out, and there's snatch out. That was Stephen Nelson. He's a University of Memphis educational leadership professor. I identify those things as as push out being the soft discipline that happens, the Uh, suspensions, the detentions, the multiple suspensions, the expulsions with services, all things that happen in terms of the things that people see as part of the school-to-prison pipeline. Then I think about shutout as being several things, counseling out of students, not allowing students to enroll, expelling students without services, which I didn't even know was still a thing. Uh, And when I say without services, it's get out, We don't know where you're going. We're not going to provide you with education. And snatch out being the most pernicious form, right, of the school to prison pipeline and that students' first interaction with with the criminal justice system is at their school. So these are your school-based law enforcement referrals or your school-based arrests. So another thing that I wanted to note is that federal law doesn't require schools to provide young people who have disabilities with their Individualized Education Plan, or IEP, until they're suspended for longer than 10 days. What does that mean, then, that schools aren't required to provide young people with disabilities with their Individualized Education Plan until they've been suspended? What what does that mean? What kind of impact does that have? Yeah, absolutely. This could definitely have a huge impact on a child's education. Um, So if a child has an IEP, that means that the school is in some form or another required to provide them with extra services, whether that's giving extra time to finish homework 
or quizzes, or maybe they are actually going to a special education teacher during part of their day or most of the day. And if a kid is suspended for say a week and they're not being provided with those services, I think you know anyone who has missed school for a week knows that. You know that's really hard to catch back up on. So for a kid with a disability who's used to having and needs those services, that can be really detrimental. Wow. So that makes sense that this would have a huge impact on a kid's education. And we heard a couple episodes ago from Patrick about this phenomenon that you're describing, the school to prison pipeline. And it seems, based on what you're sharing and what experts and kids have told you, that this phenomenon is particularly bad for kids with disabilities. Schools seem to have a hard time accommodating these kids, so they end up being funneled into the juvenile system. Yes, exactly. Okay. So earlier we were talking about how there are multiple groups of minority youth who face particular challenges in the juvenile systems. Can we talk about how some of these groups might intersect, such as how like disabilities might intersect with your race, for example. Yeah, so I actually want to bring in M. Alex Evans to talk a little bit about that. He's an attorney with Disability Rights North Carolina, and he focuses on the intersections of race, punishment, and schools. On one end, there is the stigma of being Black, right? Uh, just institutional racism, but then there's also a stigma of disability at the same time. You know, you have students who um, have disabilities who are um, oftentimes unable to signal to teachers, police officers, other authority figures in a way that's acceptable to the social norms, right, or to the social contract, social contract. So when they're unable to communicate in those ways or able to respond in those ways, then they're criminalized or they're then asked to comply. Wow. So based on what M. Alex Evans is saying, it seems like kids who might have a disability and also be a youth of color have extra challenges when it comes to this being policed in schools, or being criminalized for their behavior. And this idea of criminalizing kids, particularly youth of color, has me thinking, who is impacted most? And I know, Michaela, that you did a ton of reporting on this subject for racial disparities, and I was wondering maybe if you could tell us a little bit about what you know. Yes. The groups that are the most overrepresented in these facilities, and really at every point in the justice system for youth are Black youth, Native American youth, and Latino youth. Statistics show that Black youth are five times more likely to be incarcerated than white youth, and Native youth are three times more likely, and Latino youth are about two times more likely. Those numbers are so stark. Can you tell me about how do we know about this? Like, What kind of data is out there? Mm -hmm. One thing we do know is that there are quite a few discrepancies in data because of the way that data is or is not collected in different communities. And that can really impact the numbers that we see reported. In fact, there is no centralized way of collecting data about race. There are efforts, but it really just depends on the resources that the various communities have in order to collect this data correctly. 
For example, sometimes Latino youth are mislabeled as white, which then impacts the percentages that advocates use in the field to make change. And Native Americans are also miscounted and sometimes questioned about their identity because there are youth that identify as both Latino and Native American. But if you don't have the option to choose both or multiracial, that can also skew the numbers. And really, Native American youth make up only about 2% of the U.S. population, but they have far greater numbers in the system. So that's another issue. And Native youth deal with their own set of barriers, like the differences in their Native culture versus non-Native culture. And their cases are handled differently depending on if they live on a reservation or not. So it seems like there's so much variability in the way this data is collected. And even when data is collected, it might necessarily be that useful. Um, Is the data useful? Are any um, organizations able to use it effectively? Yes, there are quite a few state organizations and advocacy groups that use the data that we do have about youth of color in the system to, you know, spark change in policy in the various communities and states. It's really on a case-by-case basis, though. There are some states where youth of color, specifically Black youth, are 30 times more likely to be touched by the system. And there are also states where the disparities aren't nearly as grand. So it just depends on the needs of that community. And one of the advocates that I spoke to said that data could be used and should be used as a vital sign that something is wrong. But if organizations do not have correct data, how can they have those conversations? So... It seems like we might not have a full picture of just how bad these disparities actually are. Yes, that's so true. And there are other systematic problems that impact these kids as well. And a big one is adultification, which is when kids are viewed as older than they are. A study by the American Psychological Association said that Black youth are seen as up to four and a half years older than they really are by both the public and police officers, and that can really impact how they're treated. Advocates say that Latino youth can experience prejudice about gang affiliation and citizenship status, as well as being seen as older, too, so they are also adultified. But really, this all goes back to what I said at the beginning of the episode, being treated differently because of who you are. And with racial disparities specifically, we have to consider the history of racism in the U.S. Here's what Harrison had to say. And I think this moment, this revolutionary moment of 2020 is forcing people to contend with that and how the legacy of chattel slavery and the slaughter of indigenous peoples has led us to this moment as a nation and impacted every institution that we have. But more and more, we still need to recognize and contend with those legacies of racial violence and how they impact, especially young people moving through their school environments, right? Whether the disproportionate number of suspensions that are administered to black children or the lack of restorative justice programs in school districts across the country or the tens of thousands of police officers that still patrol halls of schools across the country. But it's overall just this culture of punitive and retributive action toward children. Youth of color are more likely to be suspended from school to be tried as adults, and to live in high-crime areas that are over-policed. 
That means minority kids are less likely to receive the benefit of the doubt when they make a mistake. There's very few black men that I know that haven't either been to prison or uh, been on some form of community supervision. When I look at the statistics, right, one in three, we didn't make this up. These are the facts. One in three will go to prison or be on some form of community supervision in their lifetime. That's Charleston White from Texas, who spent nearly seven years in the Giddings State School for Murder, starting at 14 years old. But when I wake up every day and I look in the mirror, man, I account for the fact that I've been responsible for taking lives, right? I've been responsible for taking lives. So I owe a debt. I owe a debt. I pay my debt to society. But man, I forever owe a debt to my victim and his family and all the other victims that I've left out here. He was involved in a gang at a young age, and he says that his involvement was influenced by not only his community, but his father's absence from his life as well. When I was presented with something to be a part of, whether it was good or bad, I didn't want to be a part of it. I wanted to have a family, and I didn't feel like I had a family. My mama was gone, my brother was in the street. Man, I was stuck on the porch by myself. So I'm gonna walk the neighborhood and go be, make me some friends. I'm going to act like some of them people that I saw acting. I'm going to mimic what I see. Charleston is now 43 years old. He founded an organization called Hyped About Hype, which stands for Helping Young People Excel, and helps create alternative programs for the kids in his Fort Worth, Texas community. And he knows that kids from underprivileged neighborhoods, like the one that he grew up in, could benefit from skill-building programs instead of the court process. And what I mean by options, what other options do we have, do the state have, do the court system, do the criminal justice system have other than locking a kid up? So that's where people like myself come in, play it with the Hype About Hype program. We become an alternative, right? I feel like a big question is just what is being done to fix these systemic disparities? either by outside organizations or the juvenile justice systems themselves within these states and jurisdictions. So speaking specifically about racial disparities, every state has a Disproportionate Minority Contact Committee or a DMC committee that oversees how youth of color are treated differently in the juvenile justice system. And so with the data that they do have, they try to make race-based juvenile policy in order to mend some of these issues. But it's definitely harm reduction at this point because these practices that have created these disparities have been around for so long. So now it's retracting that and also just naming the specific disparities that kids that fall into a minority face. We have to be specific about what it is that is impacting these kids. Right. Like you were saying earlier, having that data and making sure it's collected correctly is super important because then you know which kids are facing these disparities the most and mm -hmm. who, yeah, who has the most challenges. Okay. And then from there, once you have that data collected, then you can start working towards solutions. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the advocates that I talked to, she said, after looking at that data, you know, the answer's there. It's just a matter of finding it and 
creating practices that will ultimately help in the long run. Wow. Yeah. Michaela and Jana, I wonder where are Charleston and Allie now? What are they up to? Allie is now 20 years old and she actually just finished her first year of college at the University of New Hampshire. She is double majoring in finance and economics. And other than going to school, she also has worked with nonprofits that advocate for kids like herself. Wow, that's great. And Michaela, do you know what Charleston's up to? So outside of founding his Hyped About Height program, he also helps create alternative initiatives for youth who have come into contact with the system, uh, so diversion programs. And on top of that, really, Charleston is just working to stop youth from entering the system altogether. I'd much rather die trying to create preventative measures than intervention. I'm going to put all my time and attention on prevention. When you intervene, it's too late. So I wake up every day to make a conscious decision uh, to work with the very thing that I used to be, a juvenile delinquent, right? This episode was co-produced by Michaela Hughes-Shaw and Jana Allen. Assistant producers for this episode were Deja Henry and Matthew Henley. News 21 reporters Nicole Soroka, Victoria Traxler, Kim Rappinut, Lane Dowdall, Jose Castaneda, Kayla Schlebach, Molly Cruz, Abigail Hall, and Bray Laquan also contributed to this episode. Kids in Prison is part of a larger project produced by Carnegie Night News 21, an investigative journalism program headquartered at the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication in Phoenix, Arizona. This episode was also assistant produced by me, Katie Seifer, and mixed and scored by Anthony Wallace. On the next episode of Kids Imprisoned. It is worse than I ever could have imagined. Like, I would never have had a child be, no matter what they did, I would never have put them in this position. When you got in there, the graffiti on the walls was just terrifying. It was a lot of, I'm never going to get out of here. Please save me. I'm so scared. You would go into a room and you would look at the back of a door and the back of the door would have like nail marks on it. 